0: Listen, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. And if you didn't get a little handout, um, raise your hand. Someone will get you one. Um, and if you did get one, maybe you're like me, and it helps you to pay attention by writing stuff down. Uh, it helps you to sort of um, track with what's, with what's going on. So um, that was one of the ways that I kept my brain engaged When it tended to wander uh, when someone like me got up and spoke a sermon in church. We all struggle when we cannot control that which we desperately need. You think about the struggles in your life. They so often come back to this. I grew up sailing with my dad. A little El Toro kind of of a sailboat. It was a little blunt nosed thing that a single dad could carry on his shoulders and walk down to the lake. Even though my dad was in the Navy, he was a very much an amateur sailor, but he taught me a lot. He knew a lot more about sailing than I knew, and so I'd be out there with some brother of mine, and uh, mostly for me, I have just wanted to be on the water. I love being in the water, and I love being around my dad. And when I think back on my times sailing with my dad, there was a lesson that leapt out to me, and here it is, that we are totally dependent on the wind, when you're sitting in a sailboat, you are completely dependent on the wind. And the second is like it. You are totally not in control of the wind. The wind never checked with my schedule and said, hey, do you want to have a lot of adrenaline or do you want to be bored today? Never asked me. The wind just showed up or it didn't. And it would show up often unexpectedly in in gusts and bursts. The Holy Spirit is compared to Wind in the Bible. In fact, Old Testament Hebrew, the word for wind and spirit is exactly the same. The spirit shows up as wind in the Bible also. It says a mighty rushing wind. Think tornado or freight train. Mighty rushing wind. Today is part two of an absolutely pivotal event in human history. It's known as the Day of Pentecost. And it's the day the Holy Spirit came and stayed on all disciples. Old Testament, the Spirit would come and go. A prophecy said that there was coming a day when it was going to be on all mankind. Every single disciple, the Spirit comes and stays. Do you know that the Holy Spirit is still making his home in human temples? Your body, this thing that we all walked in here with, we can't shake it if we try, is made in the image of God and is designed to be the very dwelling place, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember the bridge in the fog from last week. The Golden Gate provides a picture of truth regarding our life in God. And that is this, that the path remains really clear. There are things we know with certainty, and the way is foggy. Like the beautiful bridge, the Spirit isn't just a beautiful concept. The Holy Spirit of God is a real person who gets us somewhere. The Spirit is on a mission to help us complete our mission. The Spirit is on a mission to help us complete our mission. We say this all the time around here. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. How do you get from where you are right now to where you want to be? It's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not just, it's beautiful to take a picture of the bridge. It's gorgeous. It's stunning in all kinds of angles and lights. Maybe one of the most photographed bridges in all the world. But that's not its primary role. Its primary role is it moves us to places we cannot get on our own. What an apt picture of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. We're covering this passage in two coats. You know how you need two coats of paint sometimes? This is a second code, a second whole sermon on this passage, because this event in your Bible is, is almost unmatched in, in the arc of the story God is telling. It is almost unmatched. You would have, you would have things like creation of the world, the universe. Uh, you would have the cross of Christ and the resurrection of Jesus and the day of Pentecost, and maybe the Lord coming back at the end. Like, those are some big four key things. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us? In his own native language. Verse 9 goes on to describe all the variety. And it says this We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And verse 12 says, And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Here's a one slide review of last week. Last week we started with common ground. What do we absolutely know about the Holy Spirit? There's a few things we can take from this that are really obvious. It's the path. We know the direction of the bridge. If I say walk that way, it's clear which way you're supposed to go. Is it easy not to veer to the left or right while you're on the Golden Gate Bridge? Yes, it's easy not to veer to the left or right. Because you realize that's certain death, and it's pretty clear which direction you should be going. So God is a promise-keeping God. This event is is a giant billboard flashing that message. All these prophecies, all these things that were pointing to this is a new age. Number two is that God has a plan. What's the plan? All nations. He told Abram, later Abraham, I will bless you. I will make you a great nation. And you, Abraham, father of this nation, are actually going to be a father of many nations. Because I'm going to take the blessing I give to you and it's going to spill out to the entire world. And number three, we talked about don't fear the fog. Do you know that any foggy day is always a beautiful, clear day? Right? Have you ever taken an airplane trip? Usually, unless you're rich, maybe rich stays in the fog line. But usually when I fly, I'm way above any fog or clouds. That is God's point of view. God is king over all fog. Amen? It's always a crystal clear day to God. So because we're in his hands, and he's the king of the fog, we don't need to fear. The truth is, God not only allows fog, but he causes it sometimes for our great gain. Every one of you is foggy about some things here this morning. We're going to look at some of those things as it relates to the Spirit. So we're moving from what is obvious about the Holy Spirit to what is mysterious. So the path and the fog. The path was covered last week. Those are the obvious things that we know. Here are the mysterious things uh, that we're going to look at. We just sang a song, by the way. It's really important. When, I, when, when we think, as, as a collective group of leaders at this church, the songs we sing are really, really important. Don't you find yourself humming a song Thursday morning while you're doing something, mindlessly singing some lyrics? You are find yourself singing 80s lyrics when you weren't a Christian and you're like, I don't agree with that song anymore. Why am I singing that? Right, I'm, I'm happily married. I'm, I'm worshiping God. I don't wanna sing those lyrics. That's because music has this way of getting in us. I love that song because you are because it's a very specifically Christian song. If you're ever singing loads and loads and loads and loads of worship songs that could be applied to any relationship with a girl or guy or any religion in the whole world, caution. Don't you love that we sang to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? I'll tell you why we keep teaching hymns, even when they feel sort of old and archaic at times. There's a lot of rich theology in those seven verses of that hymn, there's a lot of teaching that goes on. We can actually carry that teaching easier when it's put to a song. All right, so before we get to specifics about something that's very mysterious and non specific, Let me say a quick word about fighting. Christians are known as a family that fights the good fight. This is our reputation through all of world history. Don't ever be ashamed to look back and see what Christians have done. What do do enemies of the cross want to always point out? What are some of the things that you get opposed to? You're a Christian. Well, didn't Christians in history do? What are some of those things? Call it out. The Crusades, right? The Crusades is, let's headlock people into following Jesus Christ. Is that biblical? No. It never has been. It never will be. Christians today can still be on a Crusades-type agenda, and they need to be corrected uh, from Scripture. What else? I just heard, what? The Inquisition, Inquisition. okay? Um, What else? Keep going. Huh? Slavery. Absolutely. Isn't slavery in the Bible? Okay. How about the Bible's view of women? Right? Patriarchal and putting women down. There's loads of things. Church, please, please look into these in the power of the Holy Spirit, who's going to give us understanding. Say, that's not who you are, God. Why are you misrepresented? And why are people coming and asking me these questions? Be ready for a reason of why you believe in who God is. And no matter what these points of history are, go and read them. Go and study them. Go and understand uh, some of the the misunderstandings that are there and, and what's really there. Christians are known as a family that fights the good fight. Christians are united on this. Christians are focused on this. It's what Jesus Christ did. I tell my kids, one of my kids in particular, I say, don't fight every fight, fight the good fight. I have a lot of kids, so I see a lot of human, the human race exists in my home. And I notice that some people, they wanna fight right away. What? They wanna just go right into fight mode. They'll fight about anything. You're fighting. I'm not fighting. You kind of are. No, I'm not. Okay, well. All right. Uh, you know, so so the message is there's a good fight to fight. Don't pick up every battle that's yours. Fight the good fight. So that's what Christians are known for. And like every family that has ever existed through all of time and will exist in all of time, Christians fight the not so good fight. Is that true? Yes. We have regular old common fights. Now, The Incredibles is just an incredible movie. Um, and they're and they're superhero fighting family, and I love that they just show some very familiar scenes around the dinner table. Dad's a little checked out and, and focused on work, doing some great thing, and mom is just flabbergasted that, like, how do you not notice that you're needed here? And there's bickering and fighting, and it sort of feels like our dinner time sometimes, right? So we know we're to called to fight the good fight. Here's what, here's what families need to learn. Any family that wants to stay together, any couple that wants to stay together, any future marriage that is going to be established, any church needs to learn to fight fair. We need to learn how to fight in a way, how do we disagree in a way that honors God? Has God made provision for that? Absolutely. By the way, there's a whole series called Dwell Well in the House of the Lord. It's a series all about how to function, how to get along as Christians. We unpack that in detail, but let me just make a couple of comments on that. This morning's message is an effort to, to begin to, to dialogue or keep dialoguing in a way that keeps and builds unity even when we don't see eye to eye. That's the great challenge. That's, that's part of why we're fighting. We don't see eye to eye. If we did, we wouldn't fight, but we're longing to keep the unity. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your Christian brother or sister is not the enemy. That's a really good thing to remind ourselves, isn't it? And this person I'm in a disagreement, uh, they're, they're not the ones I'm, I'm fighting against. So what is the good fight? Let me talk for a moment about essentials. And I want you to take your hand, I want you to put it in a fist, and you are not going to use it to punch your neighbor. If that was your first thought, you might be one of those fighters I was talking about. You're like, sweet, I love Dave's illustrations. Keep your hands to yourself. This represents this. Keep your hand tight closed. There are some truths that exist in the world that are called closed handed issues. These are the issues, these are the truths that we as Christians should be willing to die for. And from the very beginning, we're going to get to it in a uh, a few chapters with Stephen. From the very beginning, martyrs have been dying for essential truths of the faith. Okay, Now, take your hand and open it up. Open-handed issues are those which are really, really important. They actually stir a lot of emotion. There may be a lot written in Scripture, but they are not salvation issues. They are not hills to die on, so to speak. They are not reasons to split from your church. So, closed-handed, open-handed. Are you tracking with me? Not every issue is a closed-handed issue. Some of you need to learn that lesson. That might be what God has for you. God, I fight every fight. Help me, to, help me to, to, to distinguish. But some of you need to realize there are some closed-handed issues. In the name of grace and love and unity, you will never go to task with someone over a truth. You're like, that feels pretty important, but I don't want to cause any waves. Church, close your hand. There are some things actually worth dying for. I'm weird in that I read martyr books and Christian history books almost every day, little snippets of it. I learn from my older brothers and sisters in the faith that had conviction that I want to see developed and trained into my life. And that's why I read their stories. All right. Close-handed issues, by the way, end up in church's doctrinal statements. Uh, Some people have left this church and gone elsewhere. Many have moved to out of state. And once in a while, they'll say, hey, Dave, can you look over this doctrinal statement and listen to a couple of messages to see, like, this seems like a solid church. Am I missing something? Um, When you go research a church, if you're watching online and you're thinking of coming here someday, go to our website. This is just a screen grab. Don't try to read that. Um, It's not an eye test this morning. You're like, Dave, blow it up. Um, This is just a screen grab to show you this lives on our website. What we believe, doctrinal issues, those are closed handed issues. These are saying, like, these are so important, they're going to end up in a doctrinal statement. Let me show you how the Holy Spirit shows up in our doctrinal statement. The very first one talks about the inerrancy of Scripture. That God, as the author, did not and cannot, in fact, make a mistake. So the inerrancy of Scripture says this about the Holy Spirit that all that we expect or teach or believe about the Holy Spirit is in line with and in subjection to what God put in writing. So if it's outside the bounds of Scripture, we say, no. And that's a closed-handed issue, because the Scripture uh, is in authority over that. Here's the second one. The second doctrinal statement talks about the Trinity. That the Holy Spirit is God, co-eternal, with the Father and the Son. I hope that makes your brain hurt, because that makes mine hurt. Three in one is the Trinity. It's what the Scriptures teach. It's how God has revealed himself to us. It's a closed-handed issue. Finally, number eight is that all believers receive the Holy Spirit. Hear me really clearly. The Holy Spirit is not for the varsity Christians. It's not for the elite super force Christians. It's not for paid pastors or full-time missionaries or street evangelists. All Christians receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those are what lands in our doctrinal statement. Now, there's a whole swath of things that are open-handed issues. I have strong opinions about them. You probably too do as well. We're going to sort, sort of wade into them. As we do, stay on track, or in this case, stay on the bridge. Like, don't leap off the bridge, right? Stay, stay, stay the course, even as we explore the fog, and kind of go into some speculation about what the, what the fog is like. All right. Um, lots of crazy has come from the book of Acts. I have a little daily calendar that I tear off, and it starts my day, um, and it's the far side. And um, Gary Larson's humor with the far side is hysterical. Here he has appliance healers, and it has this guy with a sweet hairdo that says, I command the foul demons that have clogged this vacuum to come out. Now, that's meant to be comical, but I'll tell you why Gary Larson has some traction with this. Because irreligious, non-religious, formerly re- religious people go, you know what, this isn't that far from the truth. This isn't that far from, from my crazy uncle. This isn't that far from my, my uncle or my, my neighbor who's always going to church. It's not that different than that person who's always trying to come and share Jesus with me. A lot of crazy has come from the book of Acts. You know, from the book of Acts is where you see um, snake-handling preachers in the south. I've never seen one in person. I think it'd be a riveting service to go to. A lot of people sit in the back at that one, I think. Just a guess came from the book of Acts, right? So we all all really have our stories. When it comes to the Holy Spirit, questions, opinions, and options abound. Are you supposed to be filled, slain, baptized? Is the Spirit a force? Is the Spirit a person? Is it an it or a he, she, or we? Do we become the Spirit? Is there proof of authenticity that I have the Spirit? Should I be looking for that, pursuing that? What signs are proof that I have the Spirit of God? I just rattled off a few. We could go on all day about the questions that abound about this. My former pastor at Venture Christian Church said this. He said, most of our modern arguments have come from the book of Acts as Christians. So you think about 66 books of the Bible, which ones does this church family, meaning Christians worldwide and through history, fight about the most? Maybe the book of Acts. I think he's right. Part of it is there's a lot of crazy stuff going on in the book of Acts that we don't totally understand. So, Let me start with something really familiar. If you're taking notes, write this down. I want to start with emotions, okay? Again, we all have them, even engineers. And what we know about emotions is we know that they're a gift from God, but we're foggy because they can also trick us and even trip us up, right? We all know this. We all have emotions, and we've all had them trick or trip trip us up. My buddy Lucas here is in an internship to learn the game of golf, and this last week he learned a new phrase called a provisional ball, okay? A provisional ball happens when you are standing on the tee or anywhere in fair play, and you hit your golf ball, and you think it may be out of bounds, but you're not sure if it's out of bounds. Instead of walking two football fields or more down the fairway to check, you call a provisional ball, and you hit a second ball. If you can't find the first one, or if the first one is out of bounds, you play the second one. Are we tracking? Provisional ball. Here's what happened on the 18th green when Lucas, myself, and Andres, yes, we do work. We happen to be playing golf this day. We're on the 18th tee. Lucas hits his ball. And then he says, did anyone see it? Now, I have eagle eyes when it comes to golf, and I find a lot of balls. Don't I, Lucas? It's just a statement of fact. I was looking down, and I go, I didn't see it. Andres, didn't see it. Lucas, it felt good. (laughs) Now, does that make it good? No. Here's what's curious about golfers. Golfers are hysterical. Oftentimes, someone's like, I didn't see it, but it sure felt good. And then someone else will be like, sounded good. Uh, okay, but there is objective reality. There's a ball out there somewhere that is going to either verify Lucas's felt good feeling or it's going to negate his feel good feeling. So Lucas, it wasn't his first time this day, but he called a provisional ball because he has a new term in his, in his pocket. So he goes, I'm calling a provisional. Swings it and just crushes it. You couldn't have put it down the fairway better. Now, I tell that story. Do you want me to tell how that ends, Lucas? Lucas is like, please tell how that ended. Okay. (laughs) Lucas's good feeling was backed up by evidence. We walked up there, and here's his second ball. His first ball was not more than, like, 15 yards away from it. To crush two good drives is hard, Um. And, and so, there you go. There's, there's the rest of the story. Um, when talking about the Holy Spirit, here's an interesting thing. This is not wrong in any way, shape, or form. But when talking about the Holy Spirit, you get people, we, we did this at our community group, you get people talking about the Holy Spirit, there's a lot of, ah, uh, I have a sense of this, I feel that, I sort of think that, right? There's a lot of mysticism to it. And again, that's okay. God is Spirit. And when it's immaterial, just like the wind, we we have to sort of struggle with language. But like Lucas, feeling the spirit isn't bad. It wasn't bad that it felt good to Lucas, but it's not enough. There is objective truth about the spirit that exists. So, just like that song that we just sang, you don't have to feel married to be married, right? That's a really good thing because feelings come and go, feelings trick us. Catch this you don't have to feel saved to be saved isn't that good news otherwise we're it's exhausting like we're just trying to muster up feeling each week i didn't feel it all week i guess i'll go to church and try to muster up emotions that always comes off as a big great big negative the holy spirit is not a feeling a magic trick or a genie the holy spirit is god active in his people Feelings come and go. They're not bad, but they're not necessarily reliable. Uh, These scriptures are noted in your notes, so you don't even have to write them down. But ours is a faith that is founded and sustained on facts. And Luke, the author of Acts, wants us to know that. Look at how he starts the book. To these he also presented himself alive, Jesus, after his suffering by many convincing proofs. He doesn't just say it felt good and then has another witness say, well, it sounded good. There's a real ball out there. That's what, that's what Luke is saying. There's an actual golf ball out there, and I'm going to show you those things, these, these many convincing proofs. The same Luke also wrote Luke the gospel, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and he wrote it for the same reason. Look at how he starts his book. He wants to give Accu- uh, assurance to the historical accuracy of Jesus. It says, Many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Luke saying, Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account, accurate, an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. So you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. So Luke wrote to give many convincing proofs to people who feel good about Jesus and the Jesus story. Luke carefully investigated things and offered research to overcome people who feel bad about the Jesus of the Bible and the Jesus story and the way of life. So whether you're more trusting or more suspicious, feeling good or bad about Jesus, there is objective evidence being offered to you. Does this in any way negate faith, like erase our need for faith? Absolutely not. But we, don't, we aren't called to a life of blind faith. Just believe. If anyone ever says just believe, they're not reading their Bible. There's a little phrase that goes on, and if you use it, I apologize, but I sort of don't. Um, Sometimes you're talking to someone, and here's what they say. They say, I'm not feeling it. Don't raise your hand if you use that phrase, but I'm not feeling it. Now, I'm not feeling it works in some situations, right? Like you're trying to get someone to like, I don't know, walk a tightrope over a tall building or like, you know, over the ground. You're like, I'm not feeling it. Okay, that's fine. But I'm not feeling it does not let you off the hook of reality. Just because you don't see into the fog, just because you don't trust that this bridge actually does continue, you saying, I'm not feeling it, does not leave you somehow excused from the responsibility of right and wrong. From the responsibility, from the surety that God's going to come and judge. Feelings, personal experiences, think about the Holy Spirit, feelings and personal experiences are confirmed or corrected by what God wrote down. So your experience, if someone says, well, I experienced this, and it somehow is outside the realms of Scripture, we're going to get to how to deal with that. Even if you feel something really strong or seem to be experiencing something, I'm challenging, I'm, I'm instructing you, keep coming back to the Scriptures. Let me give you one more Scripture, then we'll move on to point two. First John, First John 3 says this, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Right in here, we have belief in Jesus Christ. The command to love one another and Scripture. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. You want to know that you have the Spirit? That's one of the fruits. All right, so this is one of the first steps of keeping clear in the fog. Stay the course of Scripture, uh, even when feelings seem to want to override them. Here's number two What do we know? We know that the Holy Spirit works, but are foggy on how he works. All Christians are united in saying, of course the Spirit works. We're, we, we bicker about how he works. Can I just make a really obvious statement? That, like, Take a deep breath and say, that's okay. It's okay that we don't understand how almighty God works. It's actually to be expected that we wouldn't have understanding about that. We looked at this last week. God's ways are higher than our ways. God's thoughts higher than our thoughts. Exploring and experiencing God is is something like exploring and experiencing the world's oceans. If I give a lifetime, think Jacques Cousteau, a lifetime of exploring the oceans, after my one puny life, I I have explored a Dixie cup worth of the world's oceans. A minuscule sample size of what the whole thing is like. So if I walked around talking about the ocean as if I'm the world's expert, understanding all oceans everywhere, would you think that's a bit pompous, a little bit prideful? Yeah, and I would be delusional. So here's the thing. Come at the Holy Spirit with, a, with boatloads of humility to say, God, help me not explore my little swimming pool and think I understand all oceans in the whole world. Give me humility to understand that. So we know that the Holy Spirit works. We're a little bit foggy on how he works. So we stand on the solid ground that the Holy Spirit is alive, well, and active in believers. We hold loosely to thinking that we have a corner on the market of how God works because that's how we've seen God work. Or how he may have worked in our life. At the very heart of the disagreements in the Christian family, if you're new to the Christian family, welcome. If you're not yet a a family member of of Christianity, let me just tell you a little bit like a peek inside of of our dinner room arguments that go on. Here's sort of the heart of it. The heart of what a lot of bickering goes on is whether or not miraculous gifts of healing, prophetic words, speaking in tongues, and maybe I would just include sort of ecstatic movements of the Spirit. That's sort of some of the nugget of what Christians fight about. Let me give you a couple of terms um, just to sort of, just sort of to, to, to paint a picture. It's a little bit hard to put all Christians in three camps, but let me, let me, let me start there. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a camp called the cessationist. It comes from the word cease. There are Christians who believe with certainty that all miracles and gifts of the spirit have ceased, that that was for the Apostolic age—it was for when the apostles were alive, and that they have ceased. That's the cessationist, where certain all miracles have stopped. On the other end of the extreme, and I don't mean to offend, but I would put over here sort of the hypercharismatic. The hypercharismatic is um, is a church or an individual that knows one book really, 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 really well. It's called Acts, and they don't know a lot of the other scriptures that sort of put a balance to it. So there's a demon under every rock, there's an angel on, in every single circumstance, and there is a sort of nonstop sort of hunting for, um, for, for giant painted-in-the-sky miracles, okay? I'm not trying to be unfair, I'm trying to sort of paint the outer edges, and then somewhere in the middle are, are continuationists. That comes from the word continue. I'll tell you, this is where I firmly sit. Here's what that means. That means I am not certain that the Holy Spirit has stopped working miracles. In fact, I'm certain he hasn't. So I believe that there is a continuation of what we read from the book of Acts. However, here's the big difference of why I don't slide over into this camp. It's because I believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit are in subjection to the written witness of the Scriptures. So God used the apostles, the early church, in a very unique, miraculous way. If you ever want to look for a miracle, pick up a Bible and stare at it. The Bible, the written word, is an ongoing miracle that God is accomplishing among us. So any experience, if you have an experience, and it somehow trumps Scripture in your mind, if you come to me, I'll just give you fair warning. I will tell you, get under the authority and protection and instruction of Scripture. That is our guardrail that, that God has, has given to us. Now, within that, there's still loads of room, freedom, and, and sort of mystical components to that. The day of Pentecost is a very, very unique day in history. In fact, one of the things we see with the Spirit, God's a creative, so he doesn't just do the same thing over and over and over again. We see this with Jesus, right? If you see Jesus... Um, heal by having people touch the the hem of his of his clothes like we don't start a ministry that says hey let's wear clothes with a lot of long flowing things so lots of people can touch come touch the cloak we don't do that right we recognize jesus healed that way but it doesn't mean set up a ministry that seeks to duplicate that right i never tire of hearing how you have come to jesus christ it's never the same it's as unique as your fingerprint The way that God draws people to himself is utterly creative. So we don't seek to go back and try to recreate that. Let me tell you at Neighborhood Bible Church. At Neighborhood Bible Church, we have had people walk through these doors. And I often ask, I've probably asked some of you this, hey, how did you hear about the church? What led you here? Did someone invite you here? We have had people that have had Jesus show up to them in a dream and tell them to go to a Christian church. This Christian church. I can't explain that. I promise you, I don't control dreams. I, that's not me at work. There's no elder plan like seeking to, to accomplish that. We, we have had people that have been healed physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, in ways that can, cannot be described in any other way except miraculous. The most concrete are when doctors are scratching their head and shaking their head, not understanding what's going on. While I say all that, by the way, let me, let me give one more. Um, there are people who have walked into this building, and it's not the building itself, but just through the ministry of the family here, that have had a lifetime of hurt and shame, maybe stemming from abuse, maybe stemming from last week. And we have, we have seen God uh, transform that person into a trusting, uh, submissive, loving child of a father. When the word father itself was an utterly difficult and dirty word to hear. So I could regale you with those kinds of stories. I say all of that to say this. And while I long for more dramatic, miraculous movements of God, my experience has been that these things are rare. And that these kinds of things are open to misuse and abuse. We all know of preachers who have sucked people in with their trust. And at the very least, maybe sucked them dry of some of their retirement and money. Their time, their energy. But at the very worst, sucked them dry of their very life as they followed this person or this charismatic leader right off a cliff to their death. Not hard to find these stories. So that's why I say it's open to abuse and misuse. I believe that true works of the Spirit never need to be coached or or dreamt up. Just like wind. I mean, if you're out sailing and someone produces a fan or you start blowing, that's ridiculous. You can't even do that with a kite right so so movements of the spirit are not something that that we need to uh drum up here's what much of life has been for me it's just what jesus said yeast and seeds how do yeast and seeds work the kingdom of god is like yeast does this tiny imperceptible work over the long haul seeds start in the ground as a little tiny thing they disappear they look dead forgotten totally nominal and then like it doesn't go boom redwood tree miraculous work of god No, no, no. It actually just does it so tiny and imperceptible. You would never even know the growth unless you saw time-lapse watching on it. That is much of the kingdom of God work that I've been a part of, that God's done in my life, and that God's done through this church. Perhaps people don't experience real encounters with the Holy Spirit because they actually don't need Him. Curl your toes because I'm about to step on toes, okay? I mean, not really need Him. Jesus promised that he would send a comforter. Jesus promised he would send a comforter because the life that you are called to as a Christian is to be a bold, courageous, outspoken, public, identified follower of Jesus Christ in a world that mocks Jesus Christ, hates Jesus Christ, and in certain seasons, Physically assaults those who are followers of Jesus Christ. We don't need a comforter if we've steered our life in such a way that we're comfortable. We go, I I don't know, I've never experienced God as as a comforter. Maybe we've steered our life that way. How about the helper? Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper. Maybe we haven't experienced supernatural movements of the Holy Spirit in our life because we don't need any help. I can promise you, if you're on mission the way Jesus calls us to be on mission, you need help this hour. There's not an hour that goes by that any Christian can be accomplishing the very assignment they've been given from God without help from on high. So if we are living our lives in such a way that we don't need help, it's quite possible that we're not working for the right reasons. He also says that he will lead us into all truth. He said that because we're easily deceived, we're forgetful, and we're confused. People sometimes get so hung up, by the way, on looking for an emotional or sensational work of the Spirit that they miss the everyday. Uh, Disney has trained us to have Prince Charming burst through the door and have true love's kiss happen, and then all the kingdom magically is happy and bright and cheery and working, and every one of your friends and family are cheering you on. And you're the center of everything. And you can tell because the music swells, the story swells, you begin to feel it in your throat. (laughs) That's what Disney has trained you to expect. Now, take a young girl, I have five daughters, none are married yet. Take a young girl who has been trained with that expectation. And let's say they have a first kiss with their fiance. And they look... (laughs) Little, little instruction going on there. Um, pray for me, five daughters. Let's say they look at that first kiss and they go, I don't know, that didn't really do it for me. Like there's no singing, right? The, the kingdom, like the plants didn't suddenly turn from stale to, to blooming. Like what happened? So then they go, oh, this must be on the wedding day. I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss your bride. They try for it there and they miss it. Maybe they try in some other settings and they're sort of chasing that elusive true love's kiss where everything's going to magically change. Tragically, people go outside the wedding vows to look for this elusive magic kiss. At the end of that person's life, I guess it's my daughter in this scenario. How tragic it would be to miss true love all around them every single day because they were waiting for this sensational, magical moment. And they've missed the kingdom of God. They've missed true love going on all around them because it didn't live up to that movie-like expectation. Let me show you our series picture. I chose this picture quite on purpose because these are very regular people from our church. But the mission we've been called to and the promise we've been given is that we are supernaturally lit up by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've been given a power to do this. Here's the really comforting word straight from God's word. That at your conversion, you are gifted the Holy Spirit. All of you. This is what the tongues of fire tell us. And maybe you go, well, that seems subjective. Like, how, how do we really know that's for us? That's a really, really good instinct, and that's what you should do. That's how you should read Scripture. Just because I said that doesn't mean you should receive it. Um, look in Acts chapter 2 at the very end of this chapter, verse 38. If we just keep going and sort of read in context, Peter preaches a sermon. People are convicted by their sin, and they say, what should we do? Here's his answer in verse 38. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God there's number one, and be baptized, that's each of you, in the name of of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away. You know who that is? It's people who became Jesus followers far away from this event taking place the children of the children of the children, the spiritual great, 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 great grandma and grandpa that trusted and followed Jesus, were faithful to the mission, told someone else about it, it landed on this guy. And that promise is for me. That promise is for you. Happy birthday. There's no better gift you'll ever receive than the presence of the Holy Spirit. That's your born again birthday present. Here's the last one. We all know that the Holy Spirit is real, but we're foggy because he's not alone. If that sounds a little scary, it's meant to. Here's the point. Just because you experience something supernatural does not mean it's from God. I want you to get this, so I'm going to say that again. Just because you experience something supernatural does not mean it is necessarily from God. Old Testament, we see this. Moses is there, Pharaoh calls in his magicians and does a bunch of supernatural stuff just like Moses. We see this in Jesus' day, where people are prophesying and doing these miracles for money for their masters. Right In, in the same way, in the same time frame that Jesus is doing other kinds of miracles. So what's going on? What's going on is there are demons who are servants of Satan active in our world. So there are demonic spirits forces that are working in this world. And there are angels working in this world, agents of the Most High God. They are doing battle, and they are each looking to achieve the opposite objective. Here's three things I want to have you remember very quickly. Number one, God is greater. He's already won. So some fog really is a monster, but we don't need to fear Because greater is he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, than he who's in the world. Right? So we don't need to fear. Here's number two. Test the spirits. I'm not going to say anything more on this except go read 1 John chapter 4. Go read 1 John chapter 4 where we're told, don't believe every spirit, test the spirits. Here's number three. Inspect the fruit. Someone says they had a Holy Spirit encounter. It ought to produce certain things that line up with Scripture. Do you know that all great revivals began with a deep sorrow and conviction over personal sin? People say they've had a giant spiritual encounter, but they're still the same old person not convicted of their sin. That doesn't pass the smell test to me. Here's another fruit that comes with a Holy Spirit encounter. It's Christ exalting. It's mission-minded. All of a sudden, I have a deep, tearful burden for people who are lost without Christ. Finally, a work of the Spirit is always unifying, never divisive. So it's curious, isn't it, that we as Christians tend to divide, over we're talking about the Spirit. That ought to not be so. Ben, come on up. Here's your action items. Don't put your pen down. We're going to hit these very quickly. Remember the green pin? See this green pin right here? I have a, I have a laser pointer, I think. Ooh, there it is. There it is. Point to it. That little green location pin. It's right in the middle of where you are. That's the point. Activate right now, church, where you are. Don't wait for something in the future. Um, Here's some three things to jot down quickly if you have a pen in your hand still. Here we go. Grow in the midst of the fog. That means this. Don't wait for a clear day. Part of come as you are but don't stay that way is this. People don't come to church because they don't feel cleaned up enough. Nonsense. You'll never feel cleaned up enough. So grow in the midst of the fog. Walk in obedience with all that you do know and don't sweat all that you don't know yet. Here's number two. Get walking or keep walking. As in go. Jesus said, go and make disciples. The love of the Lord will lead you to other people. We are to be speaking up and speaking out of the glories of Jesus Christ. And finally, number three, live for God's glory alone. Remember the purpose of the power that's been given. It is not to have your best life now. That is not why the Spirit is given to you. In fact, Christ died so that you can be possessed by the Holy Spirit. You ever think about that? The life we're called to live is one that lays itself down, that dies for others. Let's pray. Spirit, thank you for the excitement of learning what what it means when we're called to keep in step with you. And God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, we celebrate that you're mystical to us. We celebrate that you aren't the invention of any man. We celebrate, Spirit, that you have a unique role in convicting us of our personal sin. That you have a unique role in allowing us to pray. You have a unique role in allowing us to even understand the Scriptures. God, help us to take you by the hand metaphorically walk outside of these doors and trust you into the fog. In love, we want to be your agents that speak up and speak out as witnesses for Jesus. Amen.